Hello, this is Monica Reeds. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is Kit Hayam, a trans awareness trainer, writer, activist, and historian. They're a lecturer in medieval early modern studies at Queen Mary University of London. Their new book is Before We Were Trans, A New History of Gender, about people around the world and throughout history whose experiences of gender don't fit into binary categories. It transports us from Renaissance Venice to 17th century Angola, Japan to the United States, and it's a celebration of gender as fluid and complex. Kit Hayen, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Now, in your introduction, you posed the question, when we talk about trans history, what are we even talking about? <laughs> and that really is what the book's about, isn't it? It absolutely is. It's particularly about thinking about how we can step outside of narrow ideas that we have today of what it means to be a real trans person, how those ideas often restrict what counts as real trans identity to something that's very fixed, something that's medicalised, something that's binary, often also something that is associated with white Western concepts of gender, and instead think really widely about the people in history who maybe it isn't accurate to call trans people, but who show us that gender has never been fixed or tied to the body or binary or unchallenged. Mm. And one of the reasons we don't call them trans people is, of course, that language didn't exist then. Absolutely. And I do, I make the point in the book that it's really important that we don't start to impose our own modern Western concepts of gender on people from times and or cultures where that doesn't fit. But I do think that we can talk about these histories as trans history, histories that show us that there is a different way of thinking about gender and that anyone who says that trans people today are newly redefining gender or imposing something new on our society is ignoring all of that historical complexity. Mm. So let's go back in history then. Tell us about trans history, because it's quite culturally specific. So in the book, I talk about lots of different stories of people whose gendered experience has been complex and interacts with other aspects of their experience. So one of my favourite stories is about a person who lived sometimes as Thomas and sometimes as Thomasine Hall in early 17th century America. And they become visible, first of all, in a court case where people are trying to figure out whether they're a man or a woman, in quotes. Um, and Thomas or Thomasine says, on court record, I am both man and woman. And that was a really important and meaningful discovery for me to find someone in the early 17th century saying in a court of law, I am both man and woman. And what they mean when they say that is they're talking partly about their body. They're an intersex person, someone whose body doesn't fit clearly into male or female biological categories. But they're also talking about how they live. They're talking about living sometimes as Thomas, sometimes as Thomasine, sometimes as someone who's neither clearly male nor female. And so the fact that trans history there overlaps with intersex history isn't necessarily clearly categorizable in the way that we think about it today, but is still someone who can show us that in the 17th century, someone could say, I am both man and woman. That was really exciting to me. Mm. Let's let's go to, to your first chapter, which is about colonising gender. And, and you focus very much on West Africa. Absolutely. So the stories that I tell in the first chapter are about people who are gendered differently because of the role they occupy in society. I tell the story of Njinga Mbande, a 17th century Angolan ruler, or a ruler in what we now think of as Angola, who was assigned female at birth, but was seen as male because of the monarchical social role that they occupied. 
And they talk about colonizing gender specifically because one of the key reasons that they fashioned themselves as male, that they were seen as male, was in order to be able to take be taken seriously by Portuguese colonizers who'd come from a very patriarchal culture, a culture that wasn't like Njinga's, and therefore would respond so much better to a monarch who was being treated as male. So it was both a response within their specific culture and the response to the colonial situation that they were facing. Mm. You go on to talk about early modern Europe and fashion. Yes, it was really important to me in this book to challenge the idea that if we're talking about histories of gender nonconformity, we have to be talking about histories where people are absolutely only motivated by an internal sense of gender. Because that is not how anyone really experiences their identity. We can't necessarily separate out our gendered identities from things like our fashion sense, our sexuality, our experience of embodiment, our spirituality. So in, yes, in this second chapter, I wanted to talk about gender nonconforming fashion and particularly the way in which histories of gender nonconforming fashion show us really, really widespread gender nonconformity and show us, therefore, situations where some people are presenting in a gender non-conforming way just because that's what's fashionable, but also they create an opportunity for people who wanted to present in a gender non-conforming way because of how they felt. They provide opportunities for people to do that. One of the examples I give is of the sex trade in early modern Venice, in which conventional dress for a courtesan, a kind of high-class sex worker, was a skirt with breeches underneath, was a mixture of masculine and feminine clothing. And it's really important, I think, to say that among the thousands of people who were doing that job, some people will have experienced that just as a work uniform. Some people will have experienced it as an opportunity to present in a gender non-conforming way that felt comfortable to them and to recognise the kind of multiplicity that exists in those histories. You bring up the, the point there about the difference between sex and gender. And I wonder if you could just tell us from your perspective what you believe that to be. I think that's actually a really complicated question. The way I describe it in the book and the way that I would describe it if I was talking to people about it in the trans awareness training concept is that gender is the way that we classify people socially into male, female and other categories that we perceive to be adjacent. And sex is the way we categorise people and their bodies into male, female and other categories we perceive to be adjacent. I think it's really important not to hold up that kind of simplistic dichotomy that says that sex is the biological, objective, real, scientific thing and gender is the sort of wishy-washy, socially constructed thing because we are never able to think about sex and bodies without thinking about them through the lens of our own society. We are never able to step outside of the labels, the ideologies, the values, the assumptions that our society gives us about gender in order to think about sex in this purely objective, scientific way. That's not something that is kind of possible for us in the society that we live in. And so that means that any arguments that rest on the idea that sex is something divorceable from social assumptions are really flawed, I think. Mm. I mean, it's become such a toxic debate, particularly in this country, and I wonder why that is. I think it's clear that a lot of the people on the side that would not affirm trans identities, that side of the debate, are clearly feeling incredibly threatened by the systemic misogyny that continues to exist in our society. And one of the things I wanted to do with this book was partly to show that by thinking about gender in a more complex way 
actually that is liberating for everyone. It's not the case that we have to kind of entrench divisions between trans people and cis people, people who aren't trans, in order to dismantle forces like misogyny. But the other thing I really wanted to do with this book was to start to step outside of some of those polarising debates and start to say maybe that isn't the most interesting conversation that we could be having. Maybe showing all of these fantastic and affirming and exciting and complicated histories can move us beyond some of those really narrow debates about gender and embodiment. I mean, as you say, it's a fantastically interesting discussion, but it's one that many cisgender people feel unable to have because they do feel that having any opinion about it will attract toxicity. I think what something that really interested me recently um, was a report, you might have seen it, that came out from the anti-polarisation think tank More in Common, which revealed that despite the way trans rights are framed as such an incredibly polarised issue in the mainstream media and particularly on social media, Mm. most ordinary people are not thinking about them like that. Most ordinary people do not see them as a polarising and controversial issue. Most ordinary people are supportive of trans rights. And it's really important, I think, to have that context. Trans rights are being seized upon as a kind of culture war issue. But that's not how they operate in the majority of people's minds. Um, And that, again, is why I think having these much more interesting and nuanced conversations where we refuse the terms that opponents to trans rights set, where we refuse to think that what we mainly have to do is defend the validity and realness and fixity of our identities, Mm. which is what we're being asked to do to secure the rights that we have. If we fight only on those terms, we are ignoring the majority of interesting gendered experiences that anyone is having now and has had in the past. And we are also refusing to allow space for experimentation and play and the joy of doing creative and messy things with gender. And that's a real tragedy, I think. So actually refusing those terms of defending our realness in such fixed parameters is really important. Mm. The book is is history. You are an historian. And so I would like to dive back into the history and have a look at living and performing as women in First World War internment camps. Fascinating. This is the story, actually, that started the whole book off when I met a fantastic historian called Claire Corkill from the Isle of Man who told me about Norcalo internment camp on the Isle of Man, which was a place where, during the First World War, as many people probably know, all nationals of what were considered to be enemy countries who were assigned male at birth and seen as of military age were interned by the British government. If they happened to be in the UK at the start of the First World War, it didn't matter if they were just there on holiday They were kind of caught up in this. So these were spaces where people were all assigned male at birth and they were all not allowed to work. So they were were not prisoners of war, so they were exempt from things like forced labour, but they were also not allowed to do the jobs that they had been doing. And as a result, their mental health really suffered initially because they had absolutely nothing to do. The idea of a complete kind of lack of purpose in that situation, doctors at the time wrote really kind of appalling summaries of what these interns' mental health was like. So they brought in people like Quakers who had chosen to undertake non-combatant war service to design activities for them. And they designed craft activities and sporting activities and also camp theatres. And in the camp theatres, obviously all of the roles on stage, male and female, had to be played by people assigned male at birth. But what's really interesting is that some of the people who played those female roles on stage then continued to live as women off the stage. So for four years, 
in those camps. They were called by women's names. They used female pronouns. They dressed in a feminine way. They were treated as women by everyone around them. They got fan mail. They got write-ups as leading ladies and actresses in the camp newspapers. And this is a fantastic untold story of gender nonconformity, I think, of hundreds to thousands of people living as a gender different from the one they were assigned at birth in a consistent way within the walls of these camps. And do we know what happened to them after they were released? Sadly, we know very little. We have one account of... There's a guy called Paul Cohen-Portheim who was interned at Nokelo, who He was a writer and artist and he wrote his memoirs afterwards. He kept a diary while he was in the camps. And he talks about meeting one of the people who was one of these leading ladies a few years after the war in Vienna. And he says, and he did not seem to care to be reminded of it. And that's a really fascinating little tidbit because it makes you think what was inside that person's head you know did they not care to be reminded of it because it was embarrassing because it was painful because it was shameful because it was a reminder of something that they had really enjoyed and they no longer had access to also Bolko and Portheim notes that he met this person when they were around their wife and child so they'd slotted right back into that kind of heteronormative cisnormative male role and would it have been different if they'd been talking just one-to-one So we know a lot of people in the camps talked about them as a kind of completely separate world from the outside world. And that seems to have been the case for a lot of people, that they reverted back to living as men. And I think it's really important that we recognise that different people will have had different kind of reasons for that um, and experiences of it. Again, just like the sex workers in Venice, we're talking about huge group of people with different motivations and different feelings about that gender nonconformity within that group. Mm. So it's very individual. You can't, there are no broad brushstrokes here. Absolutely, yeah. And they are individuals and it's important, I think, as part of an ethical way of writing history to Mm. recognise that. Well, let's look now at this entangled history of gay and trans experience. Yeah. This was a really important chapter for me to write, I think, because... There's a lot of contestation about queer histories, about whether these people count as gay men or lesbians or whether they count as trans people. But actually, if you go back even to the early 20th century, there is no separation. There is the category of inversion, which frames same-sex attraction as a form of gendered inversion. So people are thinking about sexuality in gendered terms. And in that chapter about those entangled histories, I also tell stories about people who have been gendered in a different way because of their sexuality and because of their sexual behaviour. So a category of people called wakashu in 17th century Japan, for example, who were treated as neither male nor female because they were a group of people who men could sleep with. And I think when we think about people being gendered differently because of their sexual behaviour, We can worry that it slides into homophobia really quickly, Mm -hmm. right? That we're talking about who's the man and who's the woman in this relationship. But part of writing history that sees people on their own terms is confronting head-on histories that might not seem comfortable to us, that might not fit perfectly into our own kind of politicised ways of looking at things. And... So it was really important to me to make those stories visible for that reason. Mm. Just looking at today, as opposed to to history, I wonder if you feel that there are a lot more people self-identifying as trans now than there have been historically, and what that might be driven by. Well, I suppose, first of all, we need to question what we mean by self-identifying as trans, which wasn't necessarily something that was available to people in the past. The idea of 
transness in the modern and western way we understand it now is a more recent idea. There have always been plenty of people defying and messing with gender. And we t- we're talking a bit about the distinction between gender and sex earlier. And it's important to say that people in the past never really saw gender as fully determined by what one's body was like. Mm. In any case, that's not some that this is not a new thing. So yes, there are more people using trans terminology to describe themselves. And in part, that's because of the advent of such terminology, in part because it's because of increased visibility and acceptance. I mean, I came out as trans at the age of 24 because I did not know that being trans was a thing before that point. I went to school mostly during the period when Section 28 was still in force, so it was not legal for my teachers to talk to me about queer experience. And when I found out that being trans was something that was possible, that was something that really resonated with me. And now, if you're growing up, you have much more access to those concepts, and so you're much more able to recognise the experiences that you're having and put a name to them. So that's certainly part of it. But I would challenge the idea that there has ever been a kind of strict dichotomy between gender and bodies and that people have ever not been challenging the relationship between gender and the body and the relationship between male and female. So interesting. You talked a little bit about Japan there and and I want to go back into that and talk more about Asia, North America and, and how spirituality feeds into all of this. Yeah, so the final chapter of the book is about the way in which gender can sometimes be inextricable from spiritual experience. I wanted to write that chapter because I've become sort of increasingly uncomfortable with the way that white trans people can often talk about genders from other cultures which don't fit into male and female categories, um, such as two-spirit people among Native American and First Nation communities and hijras in India. Often the way that we talk about this is to say, oh, well, two-spirit people exist, so obviously gender isn't binary, so obviously my gender is valid. And we sort of use those people's experiences to validate our own without thinking about what it means to be a person of that gender and without also thinking about how we can give back to those communities without just taking. And one of the things that it means to think deeply about what it means to be a two-spirit person or a hijra or many other gendered experiences is to understand that they are rooted in spirituality, that the intertribal term two-spirit was chosen for a reason to reflect the fact that two-spirit people in North America often experience their gender as inextricable from a spiritual experience, as revealed by a spiritual experience, or as spiritual in a really importantly embodied way. And so as a person without a faith, that isn't something that I can fully empathise with, but it is incredibly politically important to continue to represent those experiences on their own cultural terms. I would be remiss of me not to mention J.K. Rowling. And I just wonder, because she is a woman of a certain generation, as am I, and most of the people that I know, we are finding it hard to see why her definition of a woman as someone that menstruates is offensive. And I don't know if that question even makes me a turf. Maybe it does. Um, but that's what I want to know from you in, in your capacity, really, as, as somebody that, that helps people understand this. Well, as someone who menstruates, I guess I object to characterising things as offensive often, but I do think hurtful and inaccurate is perhaps a more helpful way of thinking about it. I'm not a woman. I am someone who menstruates, um, and therefore defining a woman as someone who menstruates is not an accurate categorization. 
And I think going back to the history of this, the idea that we have always been able to easily categorize people on the basis of their bodies is just something that doesn't stand up to even the most kind of cursory levels of scrutiny. In fact, the idea that we can really clearly divide people and their bodies into male and female is a 19th and early 20th century idea. It's something that comes from sexology and often actually from eugenics. The idea of sexual dimorphism is something that was constructed by eugenicist scientists who wanted to say that white people were the people with bodies that were most perfectly divided into male and female. So I think we should be really critical of why we have those ideas about bodies today. And the final thing I guess I want to say there is that, once again, if we are thinking that sex is something very kind of objective and biological, we are missing the way that it is our society that makes bodies matter in the way that they do. If, for example, a manager at work is going to discriminate against a woman on the basis that he thinks, oh, I won't promote her because she'll go on and have children later on, he is going to do that regardless of what her actual reproductive capacity is. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know anything about her body, but he is going to do it on the basis of how she's gendered within society. And that, to me, says really clearly that we should be thinking about dismantling misogyny on the basis of how people are treated socially without scrutiny of what that specifically their bodies are like. Do you see, though, where certain women are coming from when they say we've fought for our own rights as women and are now feeling that those rights are being taken away? I think I would love to be able to have a conversation with those women about what rights they feel are being taken away and who is the real enemy here. And the enemy here is the people who want to reduce anybody, women, men, or non-binary people or intersex people, to a collection of body parts. Mm. This is what we've seen in the US. The repeal of Roe versus Wade is, or the dismantling of it, is an act that took place because of misogyny, for sure. But it is an act that is going to affect people well beyond women and anyone who can get pregnant. And those people who committed that act of misogyny are people who don't care about women's rights or trans rights. We have common enemies. And it really, really saddens me that we've become so divided because that is what enables the people who want to attack women's rights and trans rights and people who fall into both of those categories. That is what allows them to succeed is the division between us. Mm. Just on this this whole thing of, of binary sexuality, male, female, and then whatever you like. I mean, surely we don't have to... Can cis women continue to identify as women without making anybody feel that they're not included? I address this in the epilogue to my book. People often say to me, you know, are we heading for a world without gender completely? And I would love to see a world in the end where people can identify as whatever gender feels right for them, regardless of their body, regardless of any other aspect of their experience, but where that is not seen as a commitment that they have to make for the rest of their life or that says anything about who they are. I don't think we're there yet. I think we're fighting, first of all, for autonomy and for the right to be messy and creative and difficult in our gendered experiences. But that is the promise, I think, that these histories can show us. 
Uh, Kit, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and I think that this book is incredibly useful in helping us just understand the history of this really, really important subject. It's called Before We Were Trans, A New History of Gender and it's by Kit Hayam and it is published by Basic Books. Kit, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the producer Nora Hull and researcher Lillian Fawcett. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>